Looking for a great new thriller? Check out Conundrum Publishing. We publish books that make you think. From mind-bending thrillers to heart-wrenching dramatic action-adventure novels, our books will keep you up all night, turning the pages eager to find out what happens next. So, what are you waiting for? Head over to conundrumpub.com str for three totally free thrillers. You won't be disappointed. Again, three full-length action thrillers totally free at conundrumpub.com str. You have somehow ended up listening to the stuff that's real that you didn't know was real but also is cool podcast or sturdy dick were bayek or uh never mind What's up, listeners? Welcome again to the best show on the planet. And that show, of course, is this one. Stuff that's real, that you didn't know was real, but also is cool. I am one half of your gracious and loving hosts, Nick Thacker. I'm here with my good friend and loyal partner, Kevin J. Tumlinson, J. Esquired, J. Is it Esquired? Is it past tense? I don't know. I got so <laughs> distracted by you shoving a J in the middle of my name. I can't. I like the J where I don't belong. It's my yeah. <laughs> yes, Esquire. I think just plain Esquire. Just plain not, Esquire. Well, that's not me, but yes. Well, welcome to the show, Esquire. I am excited <laughs> to jump in. As always, I have just now seen what your topic is going to be about, and I can't wait to get to it. But before we do. Before we get into the fun stuff, I'm going to do a boring one. Okay. I'm going to talk about I something we all know is real. <laughs> something we already know about. I'm just kidding. I mean, we do know about it, but I'm going to talk about Stonehenge, right? So now, you may be listening, listener. Well, I already know about that. And yeah, sure, it's cool. But what are you going to tell me that I didn't already know? And here's the answer to that, dear listener. You did not know that Stonehenge was purchased by a lawyer in 1915. This is some fascinating stuff here. It's kind of a cool story. In case someone's been living under a Stonehenge-shaped rock, I'll go ahead and just kind of give a rundown. But this is the circle of rocks, uh, stones, I guess, in the shape of a henge, I would say. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, It's in England. And it is part of the UNESCO World Heritage Sites. It was added in 1986, so that basically just means it's protected by a governing body, a worldwide governing body. So before that, it was still declared a scheduled monument, which is the very British way of saying it's protected by the United Kingdom. So it currently belongs to the crown, and that's capitalized. So there's a person who technically owns it, and that is Her Majesty the Queen. But this wasn't always the case, all right? It wasn't always owned by the queen. It was not always quote-unquote, public-ish property. Now, Stonehenge, I guess, I didn't know this either, but it's called a cromlech. It seems to be kind of a Scottish word. Um, A set of menhirs, which is, it's funny, the article that I'm linking, they call Stonehenge, they say, a cromlech is a set of menhirs, as if menhirs is like a a word that we all know. Yeah, Yeah, just to clarify a little, a cromlech is a set of menhirs. Okay, but then it continues after a comma. 
stones that are placed vertically, which are arranged in a circular shape. So this is what we all know, right? We know and love about Stonehenge. It's um, all these stones, <laughs> these menhirs that measure between four and seven meters high, which is about three feet for us Americans, and about two meters wide. And each of them weigh between 25 and 50 tons. So this isn't a small project. This isn't a, a tiny little thing. This is a pretty big deal. Of course, we all know we've probably seen pictures of it at least, if not actually gone to visit it. And it's located about two miles west of Amesbury in Wiltshire near Salisbury. If anybody knows anything about England, that's about where it is. What we know so far, if we trust the archaeologists, is that it was built near the end of the Neolithic era. The Paleolithic age, is that what we call the Stone Age? Paleolithic, yes. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So Neolithic was probably after Paleolithic period, I believe. Yes. And because uh, I think that means new, so the new age. It's about 5,000 years ago, essentially. And these stones were brought over from Wales through the River Avon. So, you know, we didn't have the wheel, by the way. So just like with the pyramids, you know, this is a big project. You know, it took a while to get these 25 to 50 ton blocks of stone all the way down there. And of course, since it's been 5,000 years, we kind of wonder if this is what it's always looked like. Maybe this is sort of a Roman Colosseum situation where you kind of get the gist of what it used to look like, but half of it fell over. There were wells, Mesolithic era wells. It doesn't say what that is to clarify, but I'm assuming that's just, you know, water wells is the standard thing from around 8,000 BC have been found underneath this site. So it was potentially something that maybe was actually useful in a practical sense rather than just a ceremonial sense. Um, we don't know. We're not really sure. There's all kinds of cool, you know, conspiracy theories or whatnot. But there is a nearby, another Kromlech. Well, I'm going to use that word. That's the word of the day, by the way. That's the word uh, of the day. <laughs> Celebrate. Celebrate. Kromlech. There's another nearby Kromlech of Woodhinge is what it's called because, you know, we don't really, not much left of that one uh, because it was made of wood. So that one kind of just disappeared. Uh, We just know that there was another one of these hinge named Kromlechs nearby. But as you can imagine, it's been attributed to the Druids, uh, identified with many legends like the King Arthur cycle, that kind of stuff. The wizard Merlin, uh, this article quotes is the construction was attributed to the wizard. Uh, as if like waved his magic wand and scoliosis or whatever they say. Anyway, there's all kinds of stuff, right? So there's even like an annual festival here and all that and uh, fun stuff, right? I've never been, so whatever. I just assume it's all a party that they're having without me. But here's the deal. Ownership of this site has, like most things in England, been contested a bit. Back in the Middle Ages, all of land ownership was regulated by documents, says this article. And so this particular area was within the document of Amesbury Abbey, which is a Benedictine convent founded by Queen Elfurth. Elfurthrith. <laughs> it's that A-E word that's smashed together like ether, right? Yeah, With an yeah. L-F-T-H-R-Y-T-H after it. <laughs> yep. So, you know, everyone's favorite queen, Queen Elfurth, around 979 AD. So she owned this place originally. She's got a cool story, apparently, and I'm, this is a tangent, but it does talk about Elfthrith. She adopted some religious habits here um, as a way of atoning for her involvement in the murder of her stepson, Edward, uh, whom the king had with a previous wife. Okay, so let's move on. Anyway, there's a dude named Chubb. Cecil Herbert Edward Chubb, which is the most English name I've ever heard in my life, was born in 1870 since in Shrewton, a neighboring town about 10 miles away. 
and uh, just kind of a normal dude. He became a lawyer and he actually bought it at auction. So all these lords and lordesses or whatever they're called and queens and baronesses and all that, I kind of passed it down from Queen Elfrith and then eventually got into the hands of the Marquis of Queensbury and the baronet, or later the baronet Antrobus, who acquired it in 1824 and kept it till 1915. So it's kind of cool. I mean, just thinking historically, like anything before 1900, I kind of think of as like ancient. And then 1900 happens and I'm like, wait, that's actually modern. That's, that's today. And so there's this cool, like, you know, progression of lords and baronesses and all that, that happen. And then all of a sudden, to me, it's like something flips and we're in like the modern day. And so, yeah. you know, as modern people do, they put this whole place up for auction because they're like, yeah, we don't really want this anymore. We've learned now that the ceremonial benefits of Stonehenge is not helpful to us anymore. So we're going to sell this. So they put it up for auction and the buyer was Cecil Chubb. And at the time he paid 6,600 pounds. And it came with 30 acres, including Stonehenge, the Kromlech that was on the land. Anyway, so this guy owns it. He's a lawyer and he attended Cambridge, right? Science and law degree, I guess. So he's got two degrees and prestigious lawyer, became rich enough to marry this, this woman named Finch, Mary Bella Alice Finch. And he inherited a bunch of stuff from her. So this guy's got money. He's got a good career and all that. And he decides to turn to philanthropy. In a sense, he founded a management company, you know, did some science. <laughs> I like it. the quote it says is he introduced new treatments appropriate to the times. So in my mind, I'm thinking like, he's like, hey, we got this new thing called leeches that we're going to toss on your body and that's going to suck out all the bad stuff. <laughs> um, he did that kind of thing, right? But, you know, he's a good guy. He's trying to do his best, right? So uh, later on, he decided to purchase Stonehenge and he did it. Legend has it that he did it for his wife. However, that seems to be not the case. It, he basically purchased it because he wanted the land and he just wanted somebody. It says he intended the new owner to be someone local. So he purchased it kind of knowing that he wanted to keep it local. He wanted to keep it in the family, if you will. And like I said, he's kind of a philanthropist. So he, three years later, donated Stonehenge and its surroundings back to the government. And at this point in 1918, October 1918 specifically, we were a little more modern, a little more civilized, I think. So rather than the crown stepping in and just saying, thanks, I want my ceremonial, you know, sacrificial altar back. They basically just said, you know, hey, yep, it's ours now. Thank you for the donation. We will honor the conditions that Chubb put into it. And his conditions were pretty good. Things like free access to residents, mandatory maintenance, and the prohibition to build around the monument. So ever since then, from 1920, actually onwards, took a couple of years, I guess, to cross into their hands. Um, the government acquired all the surrounding land, so they completely could avoid the construction of any buildings and all that, and then just basically preserve the roads that led to it. So, I mean, it's basically, ever since then, it's, it's I mean, the rest of history, as they say. Ever since then, it's been property of the crown, and it was briefly in the hands of a lawyer who could have probably done whatever he wanted to it. So the whole reason this is on there today is totally not because I didn't have a story and had to find one last minute. It's absolutely because I just find stuff like this fascinating. We have pieces of history that are literally in a private party's hands. A single man could have decided the fate of a beloved ancient artifact. And uh, instead, yeah. he decided to do good and turned it over to the government. And that's not always good. I mean, sometimes governments do crappy stuff, but yeah. <laughs> in this case, it seemed to be good, right? Oh, that's awesome, man. And he and your choice of that story has had an impact on my life and the lives of those listening. 
Excellent. That's what I'm here for, man. <laughs> I'm back in your life, then I don't even know why we're doing it. That was a segue into my topic. <laughs> after you started talking about your topic, I realized, oh, I had something else that I was going to talk about. So rather than the thing that I shared with you, Ooh, I'm going to be on my toes. I'm going to discuss something that dovetails nicely in with your topic, okay? Ready? Oh, I love this. I love this already. Yes. Go ahead. We're going to leave jolly old England and the ancient Stonehenge there, and we're going to jump over the pond to a little place called Salem, but Salem, New Hampshire. In Salem, New Hampshire in the 1800s, there was discovered a structure that is today referred to as America's Stonehenge. So there's a lot of really interesting things that, that are kind of tied to this structure. So you can see why I wanted to do this. But okay, so in Salem, New Hampshire, there is a structure that looks quite a bit like it is. It is a hinge. It is just like a stone hinge in, in the sense that it is a series of uh, structures built from uh, local stone. Of course, because in America, there's always the question of its authenticity. But this thing stretches back to like the 1800s in a period of time when a lot of people might not have even known what the British Stonehenge was. So, in fact, when was when was Stonehenge discovered in England, did you say? I don't think I said. I'm not sure when it was discovered, but I guess that kind of is hard to tell because it seems like, I think England's always kind of been populated. Yeah, um, but well, I don't think that that structure was necessarily publicly known about until much later, but I, don't, I may be wrong fair. about yeah, that, but... But this one was discovered in the 1800s uh, and was kind of discovered by people who were quarrying and mining for rock and, and stuff for, uh, for building materials. But it first appeared in print in 1907. So it's been around for quite a while. People know about it for quite a while. An American named, I think, William. Yeah, William Goodwin, who uh, was an insurance executive. He actually bought the property, just like your lawyer. He bought the property in 1937 after hearing about it on a radio program in which the radio announcer was talking about how this was stranger than people first thought, because this thing had been around for a long time uh, and that it might predate the era of Columbus in America. Like it may be pre-Columbian. So he was intrigued and bought it. And he kind of lived on the property and used the stone structures for things like herding sheep and things like that, <laughs> herding animals. But he named it like Mystery, I think it was like Mystery Mountain or something. And then in the 80s, descendants decided to go with a name that was coined in uh, back in like the 20s or 30s, referring to it as America's Stonehenge. So it's been called that ever since. And it's been studied, but there are a lot of interesting things on the site. So there's one thing called the uh, sacrificial table. It looks like a table. It's got a groove in it. Now, there is some indication that this structure may have been built by the Phoenicians, which is pretty astounding. Or you may have heard of them as the Canaanites if you didn't if you haven't heard of the Phoenicians. But they were yeah, a seafaring that's a strange yeah. uh, a strange one. I didn't expect the, well, those guys to show that, up here. It's kind of a theory because of some of the things they found on the site, but there's also the same theory applies to the Stonehenge in the UK. They think the Phoenicians might had a hand in building that as well. So that's a very important detail for something that's coming up. So keep that in your data bank. But okay. so the, these, the sacrificial table, now something that people may not realize about the Phoenicians is they actually were one of the early practitioners of human sacrifice. So 
they named this sacrificial table based on that idea, right? Because it's a stone table that has a groove in it that's slanted so that anything that is slaughtered on the table, the blood would run off and gather into something. You know, they, there's a spot where you could put like an, a vase or something underneath it to gather all the blood. But another quirk of this is at that sacrificial table, a ways from that spot, there's kind of a man-made cave. There's a real, it's a natural made cave, but it's been sort of, it's got stacked stones and things and so that it's kind of enclosed. But if you're in that cave and you were to start talking, your voice would project up a, basically a small stone tube and would come out at that sacrificial table. So basically they think there would be a crowd of people there. They're about to sacrifice this guy. The guy's yelling, no, it's not me. Don't do me. Don't do me. And suddenly a voice of the gods could be heard saying, you know, go ahead, slaughter this punk. He's 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 on my list. So it was kind of some trickery, right? So or at least that's what yeah. people think. Very um, pleasant. Very pleasant. <laughs> there is something really profoundly interesting, a coincidence perhaps, but I don't think so, based on the evidence. So if there is a portion of this structure that aligns with the sunrise on the summer solstice. Okay. And if you draw a line from that spot across the globe, it aligns with the exact same point on the UK Stonehenge across the globe. Very interesting. Yeah. And if you continue that line, you end up in, I believe, oh gosh, now I can't remember where it is, but you end up in like basically the home city of the Canaanites. So these were people who knew the stars, they knew alignments, they knew how to navigate by the stars. One of the things that made them such a powerful seafaring race was the fact that they could navigate by stars, whereas a lot of seafaring races had to basically anchor for the night or they'd get lost. But these guys could continue sailing even across vast ocean by using the basically the North Star. So they knew how to find their way around. So that's one of the re- things that's kind of credence to the idea that it may have been the Phoenicians who built both of these structures, especially since they aligned, because they had a deep knowledge of uh, astronomy. They knew exactly how to align things. They would understand that, you know, the winter solstice and the summer solstice, the sun's going to rise here and it's going to rise there. The equinox is going to be at a level plane with the earth, uh, with the equator. So they knew all these things. And they were able to build structures that align with the heavens, as it were, just like the two hinges. So, yeah, there's uh, quite a bit of information about these things. But despite that, you still just really don't know anything. (laughs) By the time it all comes down to it, you really don't know what the story is with these things. But the fact that there even is an American Stonehenge is kind of remarkable. So, yeah. You know, Kevin, I would have thought with all this stuff about, you know, summer and winter solstices, you know, I would have thought historically, like when we got to 2021, the summer solstice would have been far more important in my daily life. (laughs) But I got to say, there's many days I go by where I don't even consider when the summer solstice is going to be or the winter solstice for that matter. I just sort of look at my computer and get to work. We do tend to know when the winter solstice solstice is because that just happens to be christmas time yeah in the western world so like yeah, january we, we 6th do, or something yeah and i mean we do pay attention to that stuff january 6th if it's january 6th that'd be interesting that's 
that's uh my anniversary with uh, me and maybe it's not the winter solstice. It, that's maybe I grew up Catholic, so maybe that's the uh, winter epiphany is what they call that. I don't know. Maybe that's it. Yeah, I don't know. Doesn't so, matter. But yeah, I would have thought that all those solstices were uh, <laughs> pretty crucial to my survival if I would have taken cues from the ancients because they're just building yeah. everything uh, based on the summer and winter solstice. And at some point, you got to wonder. Maybe it's just like they're like, oh, I don't know. I don't know, Groot. How should we uh, build this thing? Well, I don't know. Bo, we should just maybe align it up to something that happens every year that we know about. Okay. <laughs> like maybe it didn't have any meaning whatsoever. It was just sort of a, I don't know. Just a, know, a cosmic coincidence. Yeah. Yeah. Could be. Could, Could be. be. But the <laughs> fact that there are two similar structures, and these are hardly, this is, these are not the only hinges uh, in the world. In fact, hinge-like structures appear edge in every corner of the world. There's even one in China, mainland China, that is very similar to Stonehenge. And for something to be a hinge, it doesn't necessarily have to look like Stonehenge. It could just be vertical stones aligned in a circle. And there's lots of those in Europe, especially in, in uh, Britain. A lot of people think that maybe the Celts had something to do with it. You know, that culture is fairly ancient. There's some People who think that the Celts and the uh, Phoenicians were actually the same people, and mm. that the Celts were actually like an offshoot of the Phoenicians, so they would carry those traditions along with them as they moved around the world. So yeah. it's all interesting stuff. And then what's really good for us is that none of this stuff is really cemented. Like you don't know for sure what the story is, and so there's enough detail there for it to be intriguing, and so that makes for great story material. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, totally. You fill in the gaps, in other words. What would be one direction to take with this if you're writing, I don't know, say an archaeological thriller? I think what I would do is because there are multiple hinges around the world, I think what I'd have is like somebody discovers that the pattern of the stones, even though there's alignments with the summer solstice, et cetera, that that's like the key. Like the astronomy is the key to a code. And they, they start taking a closer look at all the various hinges that they can find. And they're starting to see that there's an actual message that they can decode from these structures. And mm. that that message is pointing to something profound, like some ancient hidden something, you know, some hidden artifact or, or something along those lines. That's probably the direction I'd go. I love what Graham Hancock said in Magicians of the Gods. You know, he said that if you wanted to leave a message, for a generation of people that would not arise on the earth for, say, you know, a million years, and you needed that message to stick around, the only thing you could create that message in would be stone. And even that, it's still not a given that it would be recognizable. You know, that's what he thinks is sort of the explanation for things like the pyramids or some, or the Sphinx or the, the structures that go back with Tepe or something like that. Like, there's there are all these stone structures in the world and they have mysterious origins and they show signs of an intelligence and an advanced culture with science that we have lost and maybe in some ways regained, but there's certainly things that we've lost for good, at least for the time being. And so if you were an ancient culture and you knew civilization was about to crumble and come to an end and you wanted to send a message across time, that would be the way you do it. So I would use that as the premise for all these different hinges and what they're trying to tell us. Like the alignment with the stars to me is a message in itself. 
you know, something about that is common to all of these different cultures, whether they were built by the same person or not, these structures are all aligned to those things. Yeah. So yeah. that's a message in and of itself. Sure. That's fair. Yeah, no, that's good. That's good stuff. I'm glad you were able to quickly segue into a hinge related topic or a, uh, what did I call it? I was it? saving it. I was going to do that on the next episode, but when you brought up, sure you were. Up, I thought, uh-huh. man, that's, I, that's too good. I can't pass that one. Can't so, pass that up. Yeah. Um, also, come on, let's get this here. I'll just have to remember this other one for next time. <laughs> My computer is freaking out. I got some good, I think we're going to call this episode Chub Hinge and Amerahinge. <laughs> right. I'll go ahead and just call it Amerahinge and Chub Hinge. both in there. I don't this go away. Well, there we go. Anyway, some good stuff here. If you are unfamiliar with hinges, as they say, we've got some links for you that we'll drop in the show notes. Just go check those out. I'm trying to figure out what they called that. I want to remember that word. What, what did I say the word of the day was? Remember it? Quickly. Quick. Hurry. Hurry. Yeah. Chrome neck. That's it. That's one of those got to get really close to the microphone. Chrome neck. Yes, that's it. It sounds like uh, Milnor, the uh, the dragon. Is it the dragon from? No, Milnor is no, the Milnor is the Thor uses. Yeah, that's right. Okay, what's the smog? Smog, smog is the dragon. Yeah. I can hear Benjamin Cumberbatch saying, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch saying Cromlech in his deep dragony Cromlech. tone. Yeah. All right, well, Cromlechs and Chub Hinges and Amara Hinges, oh my. It has been quite an episode today, as you probably no doubt are realizing. We hope that this has caused you to slide into a bit of Liverpool slanted dialect here, some old British English. As you go about your day, just keep in mind all the cromlechs that may be around you at all times, waiting to be unearthed by a radio host and a backyard archaeologist like us. <laughs> there you go. If you don't stumble upon any cromlechs today, then you know there's always tomorrow, guys. So just... Have a good weekend searching for Chromelex in your backyard. And hey, if you do find one, we want to hear about it. We do. We want to know about it. You can just send us an email. What was that? Go ahead. I'll let you do it. No, I'm saying please tell us all about the Chromelex you find. We do want to hear about (laughs) how big your Chromelex is. Size matters with Chromelex when it comes to Chromelex. So send us your Chromelex information or whatever information you want. Or if you just want to tell us to shut up and stop talking about Chromelex. You can send that directly to our inbox at hello at stuffthatsreal.com. Uh, we should probably wrap this up. Otherwise, I'm going to keep saying Cromlack for the rest of the day. So, Kevin, it's been fun. And we will see you next time on stuff that's real that you didn't know is real, but also is cool. Cromlack out. Stuff that's real. Looking for a great new thriller? Check out Conundrum Publishing. We publish books that make you think. From mind-bending thrillers to heart-wrenching dramatic action-adventure novels, our books will keep you up all night, turning the pages, eager to find out what happens next. So, what are you waiting for? Head over to conundrumpub.com str for three totally free thrillers. You won't be disappointed. Again, three full-length action thrillers totally free at conundrumpub.com slash str.